Let us pray. God of love, of life, of hope, of promise, we come to bring our praise and our thanksgiving this morning. We thank you for the gift of another day of life. We thank you for the sustaining love that has brought us this far and will never let us go. We thank you for those who bring your love to us in skin and bone, in flesh and blood, who are the presence of your love around us. We thank you for those moments of certainty when all that is promised becomes that which we know we can depend on and our lives are secure and we can rest in that knowledge. And we thank you too for the moments when it just doesn't feel like that, when it's very shaky, when we don't know what's happening and the next moment, let alone tomorrow, seems too big to hope for. We thank you that in that too, your love comes to us and surprises us and holds us secure. Thank you that your love and the promise of your presence do not depend on our feelings and our experience, but on your word, on your promise. And thank you that in death and resurrection, we have the assurance that whatever we feel, whatever we see, whatever the world looks like to us, this is the truth. That you will go to whatever lengths it takes to love us and that love will overcome all that seems to defeat us of death and fear and sin. And forgive us when we take refuge in making our world small, in surrounding ourselves with protection because we are afraid, in shutting out others because we cannot trust them in turning others into the bearers of all evil so that we feel good. Forgive us for all of that. Forgive us for forgetting that you love us. And we pray this morning you make it real for us again. Make it real for us in the words and the touch of other people. <coughs> Make it real for us in the moments of silence. Make it real for us as we draw each breath and feel the beat of our heart. Make it real for us by your risen presence, startling us and leading us and blessing us and healing us so that we may live in hope and joy and faith for the blessing of your world, for the coming of your kingdom. <coughs> we bring our prayers, trusting not in our faith, 
and not in our goodness, but in the promise of Jesus. And we pray in the words which he has given and his people have shared through the ages, as we say together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. The first reading from the Gospel of Luke, St. Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 to 48. While we were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that, is, <coughs> that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Whilst in the, their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Thanks be to God for this reading of his word. The second reading is from the first letter of John, chapter 2 verse 29, and running straight on to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. 
and all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Thanks be to God for this reading of his word. I'm very aware that in just a few weeks from now, I'm going to be standing in front of a congregation wondering, who are you? And they are going to be wondering much the same about me. And there'll be some folk here this morning looking around this gathering, wondering the same kind of thing. Who are these people? And noticing that at least some are looking at them and asking that same question. Who are you? There are moments when we wonder it even of ourselves. Who am I? What does it mean to be me? This name, this body, this collection of characteristics, these experiences and expectations. Sometimes when we go into new situations, nervous or excited or wondering how to do it, people say to us, relax, be yourself. And that can leave us asking, but who is that self? Who is that I'm supposed to be? Identity is at the heart of the passage from 1 John that we've just read this morning. We are continuing our lectionary guided gentle meander through some of the themes taken up in this address to an early congregation, this first letter of John's. And the letter, as Simon was exploring last week, is an exploration of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, to live life in and through him. And it's written to a congregation or to congregations who seem to be struggling to find a common identity. The urging throughout the letter is to love one another, to beware of those who will try to cause dissension, who will bring in values that aren't authentic to the faith, who will drive wedges between people, and instead to find ways of living together that will be true to who you are. And here, in the very middle of the letter, the writer has a passionate and insistent passage outlining who they are. Not just a common identity that will mark them out and stop their quarreling, but who they actually are, positively. We are called children of God, and that is what we are. In these words, the writer or the preacher is maintaining and affirming that just as much as I am my parents' daughter, that makes me who I am through my DNA, through my history and my story, creates a recognition of me. Those who name Jesus as Lord, who live in the life that is Jesus, are children of God. The God whom earlier in the letter he has identified as life, light, love. Later on he will absolutely say, is the full being of love. God is love, comes in the next chapter. And it's surprisingly easy for us to miss the power of this passage. This notion of being a child of God has got deeply embodied and embedded in our theology, even in our popular culture. The widespread use of the Lord's Prayer in various contexts, while it may be fading away now, is still a strong enough folk memory for people to have a passing acquaintance, at least, of calling God Father with its implication that we are children of God. It's become such a commonplace phrase that it's almost lost the shock value that should actually make us breathless when we hear it. Elsewhere, writers of the New Testament, especially in the letters, speak of us as being adopted into the family of God, and that carries a deep and emotive charge. We get the impact of adoption, its connotations of choice, of deliberately willed commitment, a life-changing change of identity. 
And some I know will get it more than others through life experience one way or another, but it has a spark about it. We get adoption as meaning something really powerful. And I'm fascinated, many of the writers who um, write commentaries about this passage talk about the writer here saying this is about adoption and about the transformation that it brings to our identity. Well, the passage is certainly about something profound in our identity, but it is not using the image of adoption. It is using the image of birth. If you know, that is, since you, by knowing, that's what the, the Greek is saying, in knowing that he is righteous, you may be sure that everybody that lives this way is born of him. See what love the Father has given us. We are called children of God. For that is what we are. We are who we are. Our identity is given to us because we are children of God. Who we are at our deepest and most significant level is children of God. And be clear, this passage is full of declarative verbs. It's not exhortation. It's not do righteous and you will be born. Okay? The, the, it's, 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 it's not if you live in a certain way, you will be called the children of God. It's expressive of it. You are children of God. You are. And, and it will work its way out in the way you live, just as I'm the child of my parents and my accent shows it. I can't do anything about it. It's the way it is. You are children of God. And you know who the children of God are because it will show in how they live. And how they live is because they, because you, are children of God, born of God. That, and what that is about is about being loved. And this whole passage here is about what God has done. It is the givenness of being born without our having to do anything about it, without our say-so almost. You are children of God because God in love gives you that life. This is who you are. This is the point he's trying to get over in such a powerful and evocative imagery of birth and of fatherhood. Who you are is because of who God is. That's his central affirmation. That's what he wants the congregation that's trying to work out what it means to be a congregation. That's what he wants them to build everything on. Who you are is because of who God is. And in this time of identity politics, when the right to define ourselves is a deeply contested and hard-fought possibility, this can sound very deterministic and very dangerous. And we are challenged now with the need and the duty to ask people who they are in their own terms. How do you identify? What pronoun do you choose to go by? How do you express yourself through your body, your choices, your decisions? And that matters. And I believe in the need to let people explore and express who they are in ways that seem to them to match their deepest perceived instincts and awareness. But I want to ask where those deepest perceived instincts and awarenesses come from. Because that's what our writer here is exploring and calling us to encounter. That at the depths of who we are is that we are beloved by God. That is our deepest identity, however that is then expressed and lived out. We are children. Called that because of love. And that is a given we cannot walk away from. And if our deepest perceived instinct and awareness is not of being loved and being affirmed as a child of a living father and a loving father, then we are denying, or even more likely, we are having denied for us 
the capacity to hear those most crucial of all truths, that God is our Father and loves us. And for the writer, that is the most important thing that can be said in answer to the question, who are you or who am I? But is it our deepest answer? Is it ours in relation to ourselves? That the most important, the most determinative, the most unchangeable thing about who we are is that we're a child of God, a child desired and longed for and loved and inheriting that identity and expressing the identity of our Father. And is it our assumption with one another in the congregation that this person is a child of God and to be received as such? That that is how we meet? The anniversary of Bonhoeffer's death in 1945 has just passed and for a time he led a seminary of those training to be ministers in opposition to the Nazi regime and in such perilous times they had to work out how to live as believers without the normal social and societal supports that Christendom has provided for us rather like these early churches to whom this letter was addressed they were trying to invent a new way of living that looked odd that was against the society around them and part of this he explored in one of the books he wrote about it a book called life together one of the things he argues in that is that the book is that the relationship between believers between children of god happens only in and through christ there is no direct relationship it is mediated through christ because that is the fundamental identity of the believer the child of god and as Simon was exploring last week, to live in Christ is to live in and with and through a God who is light and life and reconciliation and forgiveness, in whom there is no darkness, who is not concerned about us offering a blood sacrifice, but who has, through the cross, demolished any claims that the sacrificial, the violent, the myth of re that redemption comes to us through killing, that that has no claim on us. And that's the identity that Bonhoeffer is explaining and exploring when he says that our relationship is mediated through Christ. He says this in gender-specific language because that's when he's writing. One is a brother to another only through Jesus Christ. Our community with one another consists in what Christ has done to both of us. I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the only thing that is vital between us. Our relationships to one another, since we are and since we recognise each other as children of God, take this shape. The shape of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Not grounded in, not expressing the need to dominate in order to survive, but open to and lived out by love and by justice, by life. And by hope. We are children of God. That is the deepest truth above us, about us. So what will that mean? How will that shape how we know and express ourselves and our relationships with one another and our perception of each other's identity? For the writer, such an identity is not just an internal thing, something we reflect on in our own navel-gazing as we work out for ourselves the mystery of our own being. What is even more important is how we live in community and live in the wider world. His assertion of our childhood entails a family likeness. Who we are is an expression of the love of God. And it's lived outness 
is an expression of who God is. And it means like God, we are not seen, we are anonymous and invisible. Jesus, the firstborn of the children of God, died on the cross. And in his resurrection was seen by a few and wasn't even known by them. The world does not know us because it did not know him. It's not an accusation that the world is stupid or thick or blind. It's a statement about this identity as children. It's a statement about this identity that it is hidden. It's not about power and domination. It's about a life that is actually, apparently, very ordinary. When Jesus is there amongst his friends after his resurrection, that passage that Chris read to us from Luke's Gospel, his point is not to emphasize his specialness, to let them treat him as otherworldly or removed from them, different, spiritualized, this ghost. He asked for fish and bread to demonstrate the ordinariness of his presence. Look, it's me. I'm doing what I always did. I'm sharing food with you. This is how God comes to us. Not to take us somewhere else into a realm inhabited by his transcendence, but eating and drinking and embodied. And so not noticed. The world around wants God, wants a God that's full of power. The God of violence, whose actions are expressed through bombs and chemical weapons as a way of putting the world right. Or the God of magic words, who can define reality by saying something loudly enough to convince people and dominate people into believing it as truth, just because we want it to be true. Or even a God who will be on our side and protect us and the people we love from harm and answer our cries for change and difference in a way that makes us feel safe and better. But the world does not know the God who comes with the kind of life found in ordinary eating and drinking and being embodied that is the resurrection presence of Jesus. And as and when we are living, trusting and being that identity, we are not known either as the people of God. We are pointless and irrelevant and powerless. And it's where God's love is and where God's life is worked out. The temptation, of course, is to try and change that, to be effective, to be useful, to be convincing, in order that our vision of God might be communicated, our identity be validated. But that's not who God is. And so it's not who we are. We are as anonymous and as invisible as he is. It doesn't mean we don't do good things. It doesn't mean we don't change the world. It doesn't mean we don't campaign and argue the rest of it. But we don't do it for glory. We don't do it because of our power. We don't do it to dominate. We do it because we eat and we drink and we live in the world. And we do the ordinary stuff that needs to be done. Because that's where God is. But the writer's not finished yet in exploring this identity. We are God's children. But we do not know, we cannot yet see or tell just what that means. The risen Christ is the center of reality. He is the meaning of all time. He is the completion and the crown, the redemption and the recreation of all that ever has been or is or will be. But that is not yet seen as he stands there eating bread and fish. And similarly, we, the children of God, the beloved ones of the heart of God, do not yet know what that means nor what we will be. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Weight of Glory, and he wrote this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day 
be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, those are mortal. Their life to us, their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What we are and will become is not yet seen, not even by ourselves. We cannot yet see resurrection. We do not know what it will look like or what shape it will have in our lives. All we know is that it is like Jesus. And again, notice, this is declarative. It's not an exhortation. The issue is not look at Jesus, see what he does, become more like that. There are other places in scripture where that's said and we need to pay attention to them and work out what does it mean to live like Jesus in our time, our place. And that means knowing. How did Jesus live? reading and listening to the stories, letting them soak into us, shape our imagination, shape our reflexes. But this is something else. This is the givenness of identity that comes because of who we are, is the work of God in us, is the miracle of grace transforming us and renewing us and expanding our lives in ways we cannot imagine. And this is the hope that shapes who we are and creates how we live. It means complacency isn't an option. Knowing who we are is not yet something, knowing that who we are is not yet who we will be means we can never assume that we or anybody else is the finished product. When we are frustrated with ourselves, when we are frustrated with one another, when we are despondent about the world around us and all the seemingly unmanageable forces that never appear to change, and don't offer hope or possibility. Here is the hope that what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we do know that it is that we will be like him. This resurrection that we are catching glimpses of and exploring and daring for moments to trust, that is the destination to which all creation is being taken and in which the truth of who we are, who all are, what all is, will be revealed and will be so much more than we can now hope or imagine. And because of that, we can treat one another and treat ourselves and treat our world with the respect and the gentleness and the expectation and the anticipation that the life that we glimpse in the risen Christ is the life that will be revealed in all of us. So when we are meeting and dealing with and reacting to one another and those around us and the created world, we do it in the hope and the faith and the expectation that what we are seeing and meeting is just the glimpse, the hint of what is to come in the glory and the fullness of Christ's resurrection. And so we begin to see with a purified sight, to see with and through the eyes of faith, not the lenses of the God of this world, of retribution or shortage, of fear and exclusion, of the need to control. Instead, we begin to see with pure sight 
sight informed by love, by hope, by faith, by resurrection. And Jesus promised that it was the pure in heart who will see God, the peacemakers who are the children of God. And what we are is children of God. Beloved, beyond our hope, beyond our thought, what we will be has yet to be revealed and it will be caught up in the risen life that is embodied in and through us as the life that is in Christ is also in us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Great God of all love, light and life. We come to you today in deep gratitude that you have made us to be your dearly loved children. We thank you that you call us by name and that you invite us to a new identity, a new purpose, a new life. And so on this day, as every day, we come to be born again, to discover afresh our being as your children, to find renewal and to know forgiveness. May our lived experience of this day reflect the unconditional love with which you embrace each moment of our lives. May our hopes and our dreams find completion in your love and may our fears and our pain find comfort in your eternal embrace. Help us in our relationships with those we meet to be ambassadors of your love which is poured out in Christ for the whole world. May we be peacemakers. May we be comforters. May we be those who have the courage to speak out against injustice and the conviction to act, to bring the reality of your coming kingdom one step closer to those who cannot yet even see it, let alone live it. And so we pray for those whose lives are lived in slavery to powers that distort and demean your image in humanity. We pray for those who through their actions cause wounds to innocent flesh. We pray for those who know what they're doing and for those who know not what they do. And in humility, we know that as we pray for others, we pray also for ourselves, because we are all complicit in the shared sins of humanity. We recognise that your great love for us is merely one facet of your great love for all, and that your outstretched arms that embrace us as your children also extend your love to all peoples in all countries. And so we pray for those places in your world where war and violence are most obvious. And we pray today especially for Syria in all its complexity, with wrong on so many sides. And we dare to pray for peace, 
for an end to fighting and for a new start for that nation. From those affected directly by recent events to those countless millions of refugees seeking a new and peaceful life away from their place of birth, we see suffering and desperation and death and we long for your new world of peace and justice for those so affected. In repentance, we mourn those deaths that have occurred this week in our name. And we recognize that guilt spreads its net far and wide. Forgive us. Forgive those who choose death. Forgive those who know not what they do and those who know exactly what they are doing. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. May life triumph over death and light shine in the world's darkness. And so we pray with gratitude for aid workers and humanitarian agencies, for negotiators and peacekeepers. We pray for those who are seeking to bring an end to the spirals of violence and who need courage to question the assumption that fighting is the way to achieve peace. We pray for a renewal of community as people discover the common humanity we all share in Christ, which binds us to one another across all borders of color, creed or identity. We pray for our leaders and our politicians, for those who we have asked to take these decisions on our behalf. As we approach our local elections, we give thanks for all those who are willing to stand for public office, give them wisdom, selflessness, and an unswerving commitment to the common good. Help us to make good choices in our voting as we play our part in the shared goal of living well together in society. And finally, we pray for ourselves. We know that the new world that you're bringing into being begins with us here today. Help us to live the reality of what it means to be your children. Help us to hold on to your great love that we have experienced in our lives in the faithful expectation and hope that that same love extends to all people in all places. Help us to lay aside any special claim we may feel we have on our identity as your children. May we see you in the other, discover you in the stranger, and meet you in the enemy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.